CD7. Yeah, she, she could be anyone, said Tez the Terrible. I thought death was taller and bonier. She's just some girl messing about, said Skaz. Susan stared at them. She hasn't even got a scythe, said Tez. Susan concentrated. The scythe appeared in her hands, its blue-edged blade making a noise like a finger dragged around the rim of a glass. The students straightened up. But I've always thought it was time for a change, said Tez. Right, uh, it's about time girls got a chance in the professions, said Skaz. Don't you dare patronise me! That's right! said Ponder. There's no reason why death has to be male. A woman could be almost as good as a man in the job. You're doing it uh, um, very well, said Ridcully. He gave Susan an encouraging smile. She rounded on him. I'm death, she thought, technically anyway, and this is a fat old man who has no right to give me any kind of orders. I'll glare at him, and he'll soon realise the gravity of his situation. She glared. Um, young lady, said Ridcully, would you care for breakfast? The mended drum seldom closed. There tended to be a lull around six in the morning, but Hibiscus stayed open so long as someone wanted a drink. Someone wanted a lot of drinks. Someone indistinct was standing at the bar. Sand seemed to be running out of him, and insofar as Hibiscus could tell, he had a number of arrows of Clatchian manufacture sticking in him. The barman leaned forward. Have I seen you before? I'm in here quite often, yes. A week last Wednesday, for example. Eh, that was a bit of a do. That's when poor old Vince got stabbed. Yes. Asking for it, calling yourself Vincent the Invulnerable. Yes. Inaccurate, too. The watcher saying it was suicide. Death nodded. Going into the mended drum and calling yourself Vincent the Invulnerable was clearly suicide by Ankh Morpork standards. This drink's got maggots in it. The barman squinted at it. That's not a maggot, sir, he said. That's a worm. Oh, that's better, is it? It's supposed to be there, sir. That's Mexical, that is. They put the worm in to show how strong it is. Strong enough to drown worms? The barman scratched his head. He'd never thought of it in those terms. It's just something people drink, he said vaguely. Death picked up the bottle and held it up to what normally would have been eye level. The worm rotated forlornly. What's it like, he said. Well, it's a sort of... I wasn't talking to you. Breakfast, said Susan. I mean, breakfast... It must be coming up to that time, said the Arch-Chancellor. It's a long time since I last had breakfast with a with a mm, charming young woman. Good grief, you're all just as bad as each other, said Susan. Very well, uh, scratch charming, said Ridcully evenly. But the sparrows are coughing in the trees and the sun is peeping over the wall and I smell cooking and having a meal with death is a chance that doesn't happen to everyone. You don't play chess, do you? Extremely well said Susan, still bewildered. Thought as much. All right, you fellows, you can go back to prodding the universe. Will you step this way, madam? I can't leave the circle. Oh, you can if I invite you. 
It's all a matter of courtesy. I don't know if you've ever had the concept explained. He reached out and took her hand. She hesitated, then stepped across the chalk line. There was a slight tingling feeling. The students backed away hurriedly. Go on, get on with it, said Ridcully. This way, madam. Susan had never experienced charm before. Ridcully possessed quite a lot of it, in a twinkly-eyed kind of way. She followed him across the lawns to the great hall. The breakfast tables had been laid out, but they were unoccupied. The big sideboard had sprouted copper terrines like autumn fungi. Three rather young maids were waiting patiently behind the array. "'We tend to help ourselves,' said Ridcully conversationally, lifting a cover. "'Waiters and so on make too much noise. "'This is some sort of a joke, is it?' "'He prodded what was under the cover and beckoned the nearest maid. "'Which one are you?' he said. "'Molly, Polly, or, or Dolly?' "'Molly, your lordship,' said the maid, dropping a curtsy and trembling slightly. "'Is there something wrong?' "'A wrong, 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 a do wrong, wrong,' said the other two maids. "'What happened to the kippers? What's this? "'Looks like a beef patty in a bun,' said Ridcully, staring at the girls. "'Mrs. Whitlow gave instructions to the cook,' said Molly nervously. "'It's a, a yay, 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 yay. It's a burger.' "'You're telling me,' said Ridcully. "'And why have you got a beehive made of hair on your head, pray? "'Makes you look like a matchstick. "'Please, sir, we—' "'You went to see the music with Roxin concert, did you?' "'Yes, sir. Yay, 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 You, uh, you didn't throw anything on the stage, did you?' "'No, sir. Where's Mrs. Whitlow?' "'In bed with a cold, sir. Not at all surprised.' Ridcully turned to Susan. "'People are playing silly burgers, I'm afraid.' "'I only eat muesli at breakfast,' said Susan.' "'There's porridge,' said Ridcully. "'We do it for the bursa, because it's not exciting.' He lifted the lid of a tureen. "'Yes, still here,' he said. "'There's some things music with rocks in can't change, "'and one of them's porridge. "'Let me help you to a ladleful.' They sat on either side of the long table. "'Well, isn't this nice?' Ridcully said. "'Are you laughing at me?' said Susan suspiciously. "'Not at all.' In my experience, what you mostly get in herring nets is herring. But, speaking as a mortal, a customer, as you might say, I'm interested to know why death is suddenly a teenage girl instead of the animate natomy we've come to know. And, and, no. Natomy? Another word for skeleton, probably derived from anatomy. He's my grandfather. Ah, yes, yes, you said... "'And that's true, is it? "'It sounds a bit silly now I come to tell someone else.' "'Ridcully shook his head. "'You should do my job for five minutes, then tell me about silly,' he said. "'He took a pencil out of his pocket and cautiously lifted the top half of the bun on his plate. "'There's cheese in this,' he said accusingly. "'But he's gone off somewhere, and next thing I know I've inherited the whole thing. "'I mean, I didn't ask for it. Why me?' "'having to go around with this silly side thing. "'That's not what I wanted out of life.' "'It's certainly not something you get careers leaflets about,' said Ridcully. "'Exactly.' "'And I suppose you're stuck with it,' said Ridcully. "'We don't know where he's gone. "'Albert says he's very depressed about something, but he won't say what.' "'Dear me. "'What could depress death? "'Albert seems to think he might do something silly.'
Oh, dear. Not too silly, I hope. Could that be possible? It'd be morticide, I suppose. Or sidicide. To Susan's amazement, Ridcully patted her hand. But I'm sure we'll all sleep safer in our beds knowing that you're in charge, he said. It's all so untidy. Good people dying stupidly, bad people living to ripe old age. It's so disorganised. There's no sense to it. There's no justice at all. I mean, there's this boy. What boy? To Susan's horror and amazement, she found that she was blushing. Just some boy, she said. He was supposed to have died quite ridiculously, and I was going to save him. And then the music saved him, and now it's getting him into all sorts of trouble, and I've got to save him anyway, and I don't know why. Music, said Ridcully. Does he play a sort of mm, guitar? Yes, how did you know? Ridcully sighed. When you're a wizard, you get an instinct for these things. He prodded his burger some more. And lettuce, for some reason, and one very, very thin slice of pickled cucumber. He let the bread drop. The music is alive, he said. Something that had been knocking on Susan's attention for the past ten minutes finally used its boots. Oh, my God, she said. Which one would that be, said Ridcully politely. It's so simple. It strolls into traps. It changes people. They want to play music. I've got to go said Susan hurriedly. Uh, thank you for the porridge. You haven't eaten any of it, Ridcully pointed out mildly. No, but, uh, but I had a really good look at it. She vanished. After a little while, Ridcully leaned forward and waved his hand vaguely in the space where she had been sitting, just in case. Then he reached into his robe and pulled out the poster about the free festival. Great big things with tentacles, that was the problem. Get enough magic in one place, and the fabric of the universe gave at the heel just like one of the dean's socks, which Ridcully noticed had been in some extremely bright colours the last few days. He waved a hand at the maids. Thank you, Molly, Dolly, uh, or Polly, he said. You can clear this stuff away. Yay, yay, yay. Yes, 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 thank you. Ridcully felt rather alone. He'd quite enjoyed talking to the girl, she seemed to be the only person in the place who wasn't mildly insane or totally preoccupied with something that he, Ridcully, didn't understand. He wandered back to his study, but was distracted by the sounds of hammering coming from the dean's chambers. The door was ajar. The senior wizards had quite large suites that included study, workshop and bedroom. The dean was hunched over the furnace in the workshop area with a smoked glass mask over his face and a hammer in his hand. He was hard at work. There were sparks. This was much more cheering, Ridcully thought. Maybe this was an end to all this music-with-rocks-in nonsense and a return to some real magic. Everything all right, Dean? he said. The Dean pushed up the glass and nodded. Nearly finished, Dutch Chancellor, he said. Heard you banging away right down the passage, said Ridcully conversationally. Ah, I'm working on the pockets, said the Dean. Ridcully looked blank. Quite a number of the more difficult spells involved heat and hammering, but pockets was a new one. The dean held up a pair of trousers. They were not strictly speaking as trousery as normal trousers. Senior wizards developed a distinctive 50-inch waist, 25-inch leg shape that suggested someone who sat on a wall and required royal assistance to be put together again. They were dark blue. You were uh, hammering them, said Ridcully. 
Mrs. Whitlow been heavy on the starch again? He looked closer. You're riveting them together? The dean beamed. These trousers, he said, are where it's at. Are you talking music with Roxin again? said Ridcully suspiciously. I mean, they're cool. Well, better than a thick robe in this weather, Ridcully conceded. But you're not going to put them on now, are you? Why not? said the dean, struggling out of his robe. Wizards in trousers? Not in my university. It's sissy. People would laugh, said Ridcully. You always try and stop me doing anything I want. There's no need to take that tone with me. <laughs> you never listen to anything I say, and I don't see why I shouldn't wear what I like. Ridcully glared around the room. This room is a total mess, he bellowed. Tidy it up right now. Shan't. Then it's no more music with Roxin for you, young man. Ridcully slammed the door behind him. He slammed it open again and added, And I never gave you permission to paint it black. He slammed the door shut. He slammed it open. They don't suit you either. The dean rushed out into the passage, waving his hammer. Say what you like, he shouted. When history comes to name these, they certainly won't call them arch-chancellors. It was eight in the morning, a time when drinkers are trying either to forget who they are or to remember where they live. The other occupants of the mended drum were hunched over their drinks around the walls and watching an orangutan who was playing barbarian invaders and screaming with rage every time he lost a penny. Hibiscus really wanted to shut. On the other hand, it'd be like blowing up a gold mine. It was all he could do to keep up the supply of clean glasses. Have you forgotten yet? he said. It appears I have only forgotten one thing. What's that? <laughs> Silly of me to ask, really, seeing as you've forgotten. I have forgotten how to get drunk. The barman looked at the rows and rows of glasses. There were wine glasses, there were cocktail glasses, there were beer mugs, there were steens in the shape of jolly fat men, there was a bucket. I think you're on the right lines, he hazarded. The stranger picked up his most recent glass and wandered over to the barbarian invader's machine. It was made of clockwork of a complex and intricate design. There was a suggestion of many gears and worm drives in the big mahogany cabinet under the game, the whole function of which appeared to be to make rows of rather crudely carved barbarian invaders jerk and wobble across a rectangular proscenium. The player, by means of a system of levers and pulleys, operated a small self-loading catapult that moved below the invaders. This shot small pellets upwards. At the same time, the invaders, by means of a ratchet and pawl mechanism, dropped small metal arrows. Periodically a bell rang, and an invader on horseback oscillated hesitantly across the top of the game, dropping spears. The whole assemblage rattled and creaked continuously, partly because of all the machinery and partly because the orangutan was wrenching both handles, jumping up and down on the fire pedal and screaming at the top of his voice. I wouldn't have it in the place, said the barman behind him, but it's popular with the customers, you see. One customer, anyway. Well, it's better than the fruit machine, at least. Yes? He ate all the fruit. There was a screech of rage from the direction of the machine. The barman sighed. You wouldn't think anyone would make so much fuss over a penny, would you? The ape slammed a dollar coin on the counter and went away with two handfuls of change. One penny in a slot allowed a very large lever to be pulled. 
Miraculously, all the barbarians rose from the dead and began their wobbly invasion again. He poured his drink into it, said the barman. It may be my imagination, but I think they're wobbling a bit more now. Death watched the game for a while. It was one of the most depressing things he'd ever seen. The things were going to get down to the bottom of the game anyway. Why shoot things at them? Why? He waved his glass at the assembled drinkers. Do you... Do you... Thing is, do you know what it's like, eh? Having a memory so good, right? So good you even remember what hasn't happened yet? That's me. Oh, yes, right enough. As though... As though... As though there's no future. Only the past that hasn't happened yet. And... And... And you have to do things anyway. You know what's going to happen, and you have to do things. He looked around at the faces. People in the drum were used to alcoholic lectures, but not ones like this. You see? You see? You see stuff looming up like iceberg things ahead, but you mustn't do anything about it because... because it's a law. Can't break the laws, gotta be law. See this glass, right? See it? It's like memory. On account, uh, if you put more stuff in, more stuff flows out, right? It's a fact. Everyone got a memory like this. So what keeps humans from going insane? Is mad. Except me. Poor old me. I remember everything as if it happened only tomorrow. Everything. He looked down at his drink. Ah, he said. Funny how things come back to you, isn't it? It was the most impressive collapse the bar had ever seen. The tall, dark stranger fell backwards slowly like a tree. There was no sissy sagging of the knees, no cop-out bouncing off a table on the way down. He simply went from vertical to horizontal in one marvellous geometric sweep. Several people applauded as he hit the floor. Then they searched his pockets, or at least made an effort to search his pockets but couldn't find any. And then they threw him into the river, or at least onto the river. In the giant black study of death, one candle burned and got no shorter. Susan leafed frantically through the books. Life wasn't simple, she knew that. It was the knowledge which went with the job. There was the simple life of living things, but that was, well, simple. There were other kinds of life. Cities had life. Anthills and swarms of bees had life. A whole greater than the sum of the parts. Worlds had life. Gods had a life made up of the belief of their believers. The universe danced towards life. Life was a remarkably common commodity. Anything sufficiently complicated seemed to get cut in for some, in the same way that anything massive enough got a generous helping of gravity. The universe had a definite tendency towards awareness. This suggested a certain subtle cruelty woven into the very fabric of space-time. Perhaps even a music could be alive if it was old enough. Life is a habit. People said, I can't get that darn tune out of my head. Not just a beat, but a heartbeat. And anything alive wants to breed. C.M.O.T. Dibbler likes to be up at first light in case there was an opportunity to sell a worm to the early bird.
He had set up a desk in the corner of one of Chalky's workshops. He was by and large against the idea of a permanent office. On the positive side, it made him easier to find, but on the negative side, it made him easier to find. The success of Dibbler's commercial strategy hinged on him being able to find customers, not the other way round. Quite a large number of people seemed to have found him this morning. Many of them were holding guitars. Right, he said to Ashfelt, whose flat head was just visible over the top of the makeshift desk. All understood. It'll take you two days to get to Shudopolis, and then you report to Mr. Klopstock at the bull pit, and I'll want receipts for everything. Yes, Mr. Dibbler. It'll be a good idea to get away from the city for a bit. Yes, Mr. Dibbler. Did I already say I wanted receipts for everything? Yes, Mr. Dibbler, sighed Ashfelt. Off you go, then. Dibbler ignored the troll and beckoned to a group of dwarfs who'd been hanging around patiently. OK, you lot, come over here. So, you want to be music with Roxin stars, do you? Yes, sir. Then listen here to what I say. Ashfelt looked at the money. It wasn't much to feed four people for several days. Behind him, the interview continued. So, what do you call yourselves? Er, uh, dwarfs, Mr Dibbler, said the lead dwarf. Dwarfs? Yes, sir. Why? Because we are, Mr Dibbler, said the lead dwarf patiently. No, 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 that won't do, that won't do at all. You've got to have a name with a bit of... Dibbler waved his hands in the air. With a bit of music with rocks in... Uh, not just dwarfs. You've got to be, oh, I don't know, something more interesting. But we're certainly dwarfs, said one of the dwarfs. We're certainly dwarfs, said Dibbler. Yes, that might work. OK, I can book you in at the Bunch of Grapes on Thursday and into the free festival, of course, since it's free. You don't get paid, of course. We've written this song, said the head dwarf, hopefully. Good, good, said Dibbler, scribbling on his notepad. It's called Something's Gotten Into My Beard. Good. Don't you want to hear it? Dibbler looked up. Hear it? I'd never get anything done if I went around listening to music. Off you go. See you next Wednesday. Next! You all trolls? That's right. In this case, Dibbler decided not to argue. Trolls were a lot bigger than dwarfs. All right, but you've got to spell it with a Z. Trolls. Yep, looks good. Mended Drum Friday and the Free Festival. Yes? We've done a song. Good for you. Next. It's us, Mr Dibbler. Dibbler looked at Jimbo, Noddy, Crash and Scum. You've got a nerve, he said, after last night. We got a bit carried away, said Crash. We was wondering if we could have another chance. You did say the audience loved us, said Noddy. Loathed you. I said the audience loathed you, said Dibbler. Two of you kept looking at Blurt Whedon's guitar primer. We've changed her name, said Jimbo. We thought, well, insanity he was a bit daft. It's not a proper name for a serious band that's pushing back the boundaries of musical expression and is definitely going to be big one day. Thursday, nodded Noddy. So now we're suck, said Crash. Dibbler gave them a long, cool look. Bear baiting, bull harassing, dog fighting and sheep worrying were currently banned in Ankh-Morpork, 
although the patrician did permit the unrestricted hurling of rotten fruit at anyone suspected of belonging to a street theatre group. There was, perhaps, an opening. All right, he said. You can play at the festival. After that, hmm, we'll see. After all, he thought, there was a possibility that they'd still be alive. A figure climbed slowly and unsteadily out of the Ark onto a jetty by the misbegot bridge and stood for a moment as mud dripped off him and formed a puddle under the planks. The bridge was quite high. There were buildings on it, lining it on both sides so that the actual roadway was quite cramped. The bridges were quite popular as building sites because they had a very convenient sewage system and, of course, a source of fresh water. There was the red eye of a fire in the shadows under the bridge, the figure staggered towards the light. The dark shapes around it turned and squinted into the gloom, trying to fathom the nature of their visitor. It's a farm cart, said Glod. I know a farm cart when I see one, even if it is painted blue, and it's all battered. It's all you could afford, said Ashfeld. Anyway, I'll put fresh straw in. I thought we were going in the stagecoach, said Cliff. Oh, Mr. Dibbler says our tastes of your calibre shouldn't travel in a common public vehicle, said Ashfeld. Besides, he said you wouldn't want the expense. What do you think, Buddy? said Glod. Don't mind, said Buddy vaguely. Glod and Cliff shared a glance. I bet if you were to go and see Dibbler and demand something better, you'd get it, said Glod hopefully. It's got wheels, said Buddy. It'll do. He climbed aboard and sat down in the straw. Mr. Dibbler's had some new shirts done, said Ashfelt, aware that there was not a lot of jolliness in the air. It's for the tour. Look, it says on the back, everywhere you're going. Isn't that nice? Yes, when the Musicians Guild twist our heads round, we'll be able to see where we've been, said Glod. Ashfelt cracked his whip over the horses. They ambled off at a pace that suggested they intended to keep it up all day and no idiot too soft to really use a whip properly was going to change their minds. The buggery, the buggery, the grawny man, says I, buggery, he's a yellow gloak, so he is, ten thousand years, buggery. Really? Death relaxed. There were half a dozen people around the fire, and they were convivial. A bottle was circling the group. Well, actually, it was half a tin, and Death hadn't quite worked out what was in it, or in the rather larger tin that was bubbling on the fire of old boots and mud. They hadn't asked him who he was. None of them had names, as far as he could tell. They had labels, like Stalling Ken, and Coffin Henry, and Foul Old Ron, which said something about what they were, but nothing about what they had been. The tin reached him. He passed it on as tactfully as he could and lay back peacefully. People without names. People who were as invisible as he was. People for whom death was always an option. He could stay here a while. Free music? Mr. Cleet growled. Free? What sort of idiot makes music for free? At least you put a hat down, get people to drop the odd copper in. Otherwise, what's the point? He stared at the paperwork in front of him for so long that Satchelmouth coughed politely. I'm thinking, said Mr. Cleet, that wretched veterinary, 
He said it's up to the guilds to enforce guild law. I, uh, I heard they're leaving the, 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 the city, said Satchelmouth. On, on tour, out in the country, I heard. It's not our law out there. The country, said Mr. Cleet. Yes, dangerous place, the country. Right, said Satchelmouth. The, 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 there's turnips for a start. Mr. Cleet's eye fell on the Guild's account books. It occurred to him not for the first time that far too many people put their trust in iron and steel when gold made some of the best possible weapons. "'Is Mr. Downey still head of the Assassin's Guild?' he said. The other musicians looked suddenly nervous. "'Assassins,' said Herbert, Mr. Harpsichord Shuffle. "'I don't think anyone's ever called in the Assassins. "'This is Guild business, isn't it?' Can't have another guild interfering. Uh, uh, th th that's right, said Satchelmouth. What'd happen if people knew we'd used the assassins? We'd get a lot more members, said Mr. Cleet in his reasonable voice, and we could probably put the subscriptions up. <laughs> now, hang on a minute, said Satchelmouth. I don't mind us seeing to people who won't join. That's P proper guild behaviour, that is. But assassins, well... Well, what? said Mr. Cleet. They, they uh, assass assassinate people. You want free music, do you? said Mr. Cleet. Well, well of, of course I don't want... <laughs> I don't remember you talking like this when you jumped up and down on that street violinist's fingers last month, said Mr. Cleet. Y yes, well, that wasn't like a assa assass assassination, said Satchelmouth. I mean, he was able to, to, to walk away, well, 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 crawl away, and he could still earn a living, he added. Not one that required the use of his hands, sure, but... but. And that penny whistle lad, that one who plays a chord now every time he hiccups? <laughs> yeah, but, th but that's not the uh, same as... as do you know Weedown, the guitar maker? said Mr. Cleet. Satchelmouth was unbalanced by the change in direction. I'm told he's been selling guitars like there was no next Wednesday, said Mr. Cleet. But I don't see any increase in membership. Do you? Well, once people get the idea that they can listen to music for nothing, where will it end? He glared at the other two. Dunno, Mr. Cleet, said Shuffle obediently. Very well, and the patrician has been ironical at me, said Mr. Cleet. I'm not having that again. It's the assassins this time. Uh, I don't think we, 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 we should actually have people uh, uh, killed, said Satchelmouth doggedly. I don't want to hear any more from you, said Mr. Cleet. This is guild business. Y y yes, yes, but, it, but, but it's our guild. Exactly. So, shut up. <laughs> the cart rattled between the endless cabbage fields that led to Pseudopolis. I've been on tour before, you know, said Glod, when I was with Snorri Snorri Cousin and his brass idiots. Every night a different bed. You forget what day of the week it is after a while. What day of the week is it now? said Cliff. See, and we've only been on the road, what, three hours? said Glod. Where are we stopping tonight? said Cliff. Scrout, said Ashfelt. Sounds a really interesting place, said Cliff. 
Been there before, with the circus, said Ashfelt. It's a one-horse town. Buddy looked over the side of the cart, but it wasn't worth the effort. The rich, silty stow plains were the grocery of the continent, but not an awe-inspiring panorama unless you were the kind of person who gets excited about 53 types of cabbage and 81 types of bean. Spaced every mile or so on the checkerboard of fields was a village, and spaced rather further apart were the towns. They were called towns because they were bigger than the villages. The cart passed through a couple of them. They had two streets in the form of a cross, one tavern, one seed store, one forge, one livery stable with a name like Joe's Livery Stable, a couple of barns, three old men sitting outside the tavern, and three young men lounging outside Joe's, swearing that one day really soon now they were going to leave town and make it big in the world outside. Real soon. Any day now. Reminds you of home, eh? said Cliff, nudging Buddy. What? No, Flamedos is all mountains and valleys, and rain, and mist, and evergreens. Buddy sighed. You had a great house there, I expect, said the troll. Just a shack, said Buddy, made of earth and wood. Well, mud and wood, really. He sighed again. It's like this on the road, said Ashfelt. Melancholy. No one to talk to but each other. I've known people go totally insane. How long has it been now? said Cliff. Three hours and ten minutes, said Glod. Buddy sighed. They were invisible people, death realised. He was used to invisibility, it went with the job. Humans didn't see him until they had no choice. On the other hand, he was an anthropomorphic personification, whereas foul old Ron was human, at least technically. Foul old Ron made a small living by following people until they gave him money not to. He'd also got a dog, which added something to foul old Ron's smell. It was a greyish-brown terrier with a torn ear and nasty patches of bare skin. It begged with an old hat in its remaining teeth, and since people will generally give to animals that which they'd withhold from humans, it added considerably to the earning power of the group. Coffin Henry, on the other hand, earned his money by not going anywhere. People organising important social occasions sent him anti-invitations and little presents of money to ensure he wouldn't turn up. This was because if they didn't, Henry had a habit of sidling ingratiatingly into the wedding party and inviting people to look at his remarkable collection of skin diseases. He also had a cough, which sounded almost solid. He had a sign on which was chalked, For some money I want follow you home, cough, cough. Arnold Sideways had no legs. It was a lack that didn't seem to figure largely among his concerns. He would grab people by their knees and say, have you got change for a penny? Invariably profiting by the ensuing cerebral confusion. And the one they called the Duck Man had a duck on his head. No one mentioned it. No one drew attention to it. It seemed to be a minor feature of no consequence, like Arnold's leglessness and foul old Ron's independent smell, or Henry's volcanic spitting. But it kept nagging at death's otherwise peaceful mind. He wondered how to broach the subject. After all, he thought to himself, he must know, mustn't he? It's not like lint on your jacket or something. By common agreement, they'd called death Mr. Scrub. He didn't know why. On the other hand, he was among people who could hold a lengthy discussion with the door. There may have been a logical reason. 
The beggars spent their day wandering invisibly around the streets where people who didn't see them carefully circled out of their way and threw them the occasional coin. Mr. Scrub fitted in very well. When he asked for money, people found it hard to say no. Scrote didn't even have a river. It existed simply because there's only so much land you can have before you have to have something else. It had two streets in the form of a cross, one tavern, one seed store, one forge, a couple of barns, and in a gesture of originality, one livery stable called Seth's Livery Stable. Nothing moved. Even the flies were asleep. Long shadows were the only occupants of the streets. I thought you said this was a one-horse town, said Cliff, as they pulled up in the rutted, puddled area that was probably glorified by the name of Town Square. It must have died, said Ashvald. Glod stood up in the cart and spread his arms wide. He yelled, Hello, Scrout! The name board over the livery stable parted from its last nail and landed in the dust. What I like about this life on the road, said God, is the fascinating people and interesting places. I expect it comes alive at night, said Ashvald. Yeah, said Cliff. Yeah, I can believe that, yes. This looks like the kind of town that comes alive at night. This looks like the whole town should be buried at the crossroads with a stake through it. Talking of stake, said Glod. They looked at the tavern. The cracked and peeling sign just managed to convey the words, The Jolly Cabbage. I doubt it, said Ashfelt. There were people in the dimly lit tavern, sitting in sullen silence. The travellers were served by the innkeeper, whose manner suggested that he hoped they died horribly just as soon as they left the premises. The beer tasted as if it was happy to connive at this state of affairs. They huddled at one table, aware of the eyes on them. I've heard about places like this, whispered Glod. You go into this little town with a name like Friendly or Amity, and next day you're spare ribs. Not me, said Cliff. I'm too stony. Well, you're in the rockery then, said the dwarf. He looked round at a row of furrowed faces and raised his mug theatrically. Cabbages doing well, he said. I see in the fields they're nice and yellow. Ripe, eh? That's good, eh? That's root fly, that is, said someone in the shadows. Good, good, said Glod. He was a dwarf. Dwarfs didn't farm. We don't like circuses in Scrote, said another voice. It was a slow, deep voice. We're not a circus, said Glod brightly. We're musicians. We don't like musicians in Scrote, said another voice. There seemed to be more and more figures in the gloom. Er, uh, what do you like in Scrote, said Ashfelt. Well, said the barman, now a mere outline in the gathering darkness, round about this time of year we generally have a barbecue... Down by the rockery. Buddy sighed. It was the first time he'd made a sound since they'd arrived in the town. I guess we'd better show them what we play, he said. There was a twang in his voice. It was some time later. Glod looked at the door handle. It was a door handle. You got hold of it with your hand. But what was supposed to happen next? Door handle, he said, in case that would help. You're supposed to do something with it, said Cliff, from somewhere near the floor. Buddy leaned past the dwarf and turned the handle. Bising, 
said Glod and stumbled forward. He levered himself off the floor and looked around. What's this? The tavern keeper said we could stay here for free, said Buddy. It's a mess, said Glod. Someone fetch me in the scuffling brush this minute. Ashfelt wobbled in, carrying the luggage, and with Cliff's sack of rocks in his teeth, he dropped the lot on the floor. Well, that was astonishing, sir, he said, the way you just went into that barn and said... and said... what was it you said? Let's do the show right here, said Buddy, lying down on a straw mattress. Amazing. They must have been coming in from miles around. Buddy stared at the ceiling and played a few chords. And that barbecue, said Ashfeld, still radiating enthusiasm. The sauce. The beef, said Glod. The charcoal, murmured Cliff happily. There was a wide black ring around his mouth. And who'd have thought, said Glod, that you could brew a beer like that out of cauliflowers? Had a great head on it, said Cliff. I thought we were going to be in a bit of trouble there before you played, said Ashfeld shaking the beetles out of another mattress. I don't know how you got them dancing like that. Yes, said Buddy. And we didn't even get paid, murmured Glod. He slumped back. Shortly there were snores, given a slightly metallic edge by the reverberation in his helmet. When the others were asleep, Buddy put the guitar down on the bed, quietly opened the door and crept downstairs and into the night. Would have been nice if there'd been a full moon, or even a crescent, a full moon would have been better, but there was just a half-moon, which never appears in romantic or occult paintings, despite the fact that it is indeed the most magical phase. There was a smell of stale beer, dying cabbages, barbecue embers, and insufficient sanitation. He leaned against Seth's livery stable. It shifted slightly. It was fine when he was on stage, or as it had been tonight on an old barn door set on a few bricks. Everything was in bright colours. He could feel white-hot images arcing across his mind. His body felt as though it were on fire, but also, and this was the important bit, as if it was meant to be on fire. He felt alive, and then afterwards he felt dead. There was still colour in the world. He could recognise it as colour, but it seemed to be wearing Cliff's smoked glasses. Sounds came as if through cotton wool. Apparently the barbecue had been good. He had Glod's word for that but to Buddy it had been texture and not much else. A shadow moved across the space between two buildings. On the other hand, he was the best. He knew it, not as some matter of pride or arrogance, but simply as a matter of fact. He could feel the music flowing out of him and into the audience. This one, sir, whispered a shadow beside the livery stable as Buddy wandered along the moonlit street. Yes, this one first and then into the tavern for the other two. Even the big troll, there's a, a spot on the back of the neck. But not Dibbler, sir. Strangely, no, he's not here. Shame. I bought a meat pie of him once. It's an attractive suggestion, hmm, but no one's paying us for Dibbler. The assassins drew their knives, the blades blackened to avoid the tell-tale shine. I could give you tuppence, sir, if that'd help. It's certainly tempting. The senior assassin pressed himself against the wall as Buddy's footsteps grew louder. He gripped his knife at waist height. No one who knew anything about knives ever used the famous overarm stabbing motion so beloved of illustrators. It was amateurish and inefficient. A professional would strike upwards. The way to a man's heart was through his stomach. 
He drew his hand back and tensed. An hourglass, glowing faintly blue, was suddenly thrust in front of his eyes. "'Lord Robert Salachi,' said a voice by his ear, "'this is your life!' He squinted. There was no mistaking the name engraved on the glass. He could see every little grain of sand pouring into the past. He turned, took one look at the hooded figure, and ran for it. His apprentice was already a hundred yards away and still accelerating. "'Sorry, who's that?' Susan tucked the hourglass back into her robe and shook out her hair. Buddy appeared. You? Yes, me, said Susan. Buddy took a step nearer. Are you going to fade away again, he said. No, I have actually just saved your life, as a matter of fact. Buddy looked around at the otherwise empty night. From what? Susan bent down and picked up a blackened knife. This, she said. I know we've had this conversation before, but who are you? Not my fairy godmother, are you? I think you have to be a lot older, said Susan. She backed away, and probably a lot nicer, too. Look, I can't tell you any more. You're not even supposed to see me. I'm not supposed to be here. Neither are you. You're not going to tell me to stop playing again, are you? said Buddy, angrily, because I won't. I'm a musician. If I don't play, what am I then? I might as well be dead. Do you understand? Music is my life. He took a few steps nearer. Why are you following me around? Ashfall said there'd be girls like you. What on disc do you mean, girls like me? Buddy subsided a bit, but only a little. They follow actors and musicians around, he said, because of, you know, the glamour and everything. Glamour? Some smelly cart and a tavern that smells of cabbages? Buddy held up his hands. Listen, he said urgently. I'm doing all right. I'm working. People are listening to me. I don't need any more help, all right? I've got enough to worry about, so please keep out of my life. There was the sound of running feet, and Ashfelt appeared with the other members of the band behind him. The guitar was screaming, said Ashfelt. Are you all right? You'd better ask her muttered Buddy. All three of them looked directly at Susan. Who? said Cliff. She's right in front of you. Glod waved a stubby hand in the air, missing Susan by inches. It was probably that cabbage, said Cliff to Ashfeld. Susan stepped backwards quietly. She's right there, but she's going away now, can't you see? That's right, that's right, said Glod, taking Buddy's arm. She's going away now, and good riddance. So just you come on back. Now she's getting on that horse. Yes, yes, a big black horse. It's white, you idiot. Hoofprints burned red on the ground for a moment and then faded. And it's gone now? The band with Roxin stared into the night. Yes, I, I can see that, now you mention it said Cliff. There's a horse that isn't there, sure enough. Yes, that's certainly what a horse that's gone looks like, said Ashfelt carefully. None of you saw her, said Buddy, as they manoeuvred him gently back through the pre-dawn greyness. I heard where musicians, uh, really good musicians, got followed around by these half-naked young women called muses, said Glod. Lake Cantaloupe, said Cliff. We don't call her muses, said Ashfelt, grinning. I told you, when I worked for Bertie the Balladeer and his troubadour rascals, we used to get any amount of young women hanging around. Amazing how legends get started when you come to think about it, said Glod. 
Just you come along now, my lad. She was there, Buddy protested. She was there. Cantaloupe, said Ashfelt. You sure, Cliff? Read it in a book once, said the troll. Cantaloupe, I'm pretty sure. Something like that. She was there, said Buddy. The raven snored gently on top of his skull, counting dead sheep. The death of rats came through the window in an arc, bounced off a dribbly candle, and landed on all fours on the table. The raven opened one eye. Ah, oh, it's you. Then a claw was round its leg, and the death of rats jumped off the skull and into infinite space. There were more cabbage fields the next day, although the landscape did begin to change a bit. Hey, that's interesting, said Glod. What is, said Cliff. There's a field of beans over there. They watched it until it was out of sight. Nice of the people to give us all this food, though, said Ashfelt. We shan't be wanting for cabbages, eh? Oh, shut up, said Glod. He turned to Buddy, who was sitting with his chin resting on his arms. Cheer up, we'll be in Pseudopolis in a couple of hours, he said. Good, said Buddy distantly. Glod climbed back into the front of the cart and pulled Cliff towards him. Notice the way he goes all quiet, he whispered. Yep. Do you think it'll be, you know, done by the time we get back? You can get anything done in Ankh-Morpork, said Glod firmly. I must have knocked on every damn door in the street of cunning artificers. Twenty-five dollars. You're complaining. It ain't your tooth that's paying for it. They both turned to look at their guitarist. He was staring out across the endless fields. She was there, he muttered. Feathers spiralled towards the ground. You didn't have to go and do that, said the raven, fluttering upright. You could simply ask. Squeak. All right, but before would have been better. The raven ruffled its feathers and looked around at the bright landscape under the dark sky. This is the place then, is it? He said. You're sure you're not the death of ravens too? Squeak? Shape doesn't mean much. Anyway, you've got a pointy snout. What was it you were wanting? The death of rats grabbed a wing and pulled. All right, all right. The raven glanced at a garden gnome. It was fishing in an ornamental pond. The fish were skeletal, but this didn't seem to interfere with their enjoyment of life, or whatever it was they were enjoying. It fluttered and hopped along after the rat. Cut my own throat Dibbler stood back. Jimbo, Crash, Noddy and Scum looked at him expectantly. What are all the boxes for, Mr Dibbler? said Crash. Y yeah, said Scum. Dibbler carefully positioned the tenth box on its tripod. You boys seen an iconograph, he said. Oh, yes, I mean, yeah, said Jimbo. They've got a little demon inside them that paints pictures of things you pointed at. This is like that only for sound, said Dibbler. Jimbo squinted past the open lid. Can't see any, I mean, I can't see no demon, he said. That's because there isn't one, said Dibbler. It was worrying him too. He'd have been a little happier if there'd been a demon or some sort of magic. Something simple and understandable. He didn't like the idea of meddling in science. Now then, suck, he began. The surreptitious fabric, said Jimbo. What? The surreptitious fabric, Jimbo repeated helpfully. It's our new name. 
Why have you changed it? You haven't been suck for 24 hours. Yeah, but we thought the name was holding us back. How could it be holding you back? You aren't moving. Dibbler glared at them and shrugged. Anyway, whatever you call yourselves, I want you to sing your best song in front of these boxes. Not yet. Not yet. Wait a moment. Dibbler retired to the furthest corner of the room and pulled his hat down over his ears. All right, you can start, he said. He stared in blissful deafness at the group for several minutes until a general cessation of movement suggested that whatever they had been perpetrating had been committed. Then he inspected the boxes. The wires were vibrating gently, but there was barely any sound. The surreptitious fabric clustered around. Is it working, Mr Dibbler? said Jimbo. Dibbler shook his head. You boys don't have what it takes, he said. What does it take, Mr Dibbler? Mm, you got me there. You got something, he said at the sight of their dejected faces, but not a lot of it, whatever it is. Er, uh, does this mean we're not allowed to play at the free festival, does it, Mr. Dibbler? said Crash. Maybe, said Dibbler, smiling benevolently. Thanks a lot, Mr. Dibbler. The surreptitious fabric wandered out into the street. We need to get it together if we're going to wow them at the festival, said Crash. What, you mean like, learn to play, said Jimbo. No, music with rocks in just happens. If you go around learning, you never get anywhere, said Crash. No, I mean... He looked around. Better clothes, for one thing. Did you see about them leather coats, Noddy? Uh, sort of, said Noddy. What do you mean, sort of? Sort of uh, leather. I went down the tannery in Phaedra Road, and they had some leather all right, but, but it, it's a bit whiffy. All right, we can get started on them tonight. And how about those leopard-skin trousers, scum? You know we said leopard-skin trousers would be a great idea. A look of transcendental worry crossed Scum's face. I kind of got some, he said. You either got them or you ain't, said Crash. Yeah, but they're kind of, said Scum. Look, I couldn't find a shop that had heard of anything like that, but uh, you know that circus that was here last week? Only I had a word with a guy in the top hat, and, well, it, it was kind of a bargain, and... "'Scum,' said Crash quietly. "'What have you bought?' "'Look at it this way,' said Scum, with sweating brightness. "'It's sort of leopard-skin trousers and a leopard-skin shirt and a leopard-skin hat.' "'Scum,' said Crash, his voice low with resigned menace. "'You've bought a leopard, haven't you?' "'Um, sort of leopardy, yes.' "'Oh, good grief!' "'But sort of a, a, a real steal for twenty dollars,' said Scum." "'Nothing important wrong with it,' the man said. "'Why do you get rid of it, then?' Crash demanded. "'It's sort of deaf. Can't hear the lion tamer,' he said. "'Well, that's no good to us. Don't see why. Your trousers don't have to listen.' "'Spare a copper, young sir.' "'Push off, Grandad,' said Crash easily. "'Good luck to you.' "'Too many beggars around these days, my father says,' said Crash as they pushed past. "'He says the beggars' guild ought to do something about it.' But the beggars all belong to the guild, said Jimbo. Well, they shouldn't allow so many people to join. Yeah, but it's, it's better than being on the streets. Scum, who out of the whole group had the least amount of cerebral activity to get between him and true observation of the world, was trailing behind. He had an uneasy feeling that he'd just walked over someone's grave. That one 
looked a, a bit sort of thin, he muttered. The others weren't paying any attention. They were back to the usual argument. I'm fed up with being surreptitious fabric, said Jimbo. It's a silly name. Really, really thin, said Scum. He felt in his pocket. Yeah, I liked it best when we were the whom, said Noddy. But we were only the whom for half an hour, said Crash. A very grammatical five minutes, however. Yesterday, in between being the blots and lead balloon, remember? Scum located a tenpenny piece and turned back. There's bound to be some good name, said Jimbo. I just bet we'll know it's right as soon as we see it. Oh, yeah. Well, we've got to come up with some name we don't start arguing about after five minutes, said Crash. It's not doing our career any good if people don't know who we are. Mr. Dibbler says it definitely is, said Noddy. Yes, but a rolling stone gathers no moss, my father says, said Crash. There you go, old man, said Scum back down the street. Thank you, said the Grateful Death. Scum hurried to catch up with the others, who were back on the subject of leopards with hearing difficulties. Where did you put it, Scum? said Crash. Well, you you know your sort of um, bedroom. How do you kill a leopard? said Noddy. Hey, here's an idea, said Crash gloomily. We let it choke to death on scum. The raven inspected the hallway clock with the practised eye of one who knows the value of good props. As Susan had noted, it was not so much small as dimensionally displaced. It looked small, but in the same way that something very big a long way away looks small, that is to say the mind keeps reminding the eyes that they're wrong. But this was up close as well. It was made of some dark, age-blackened wood. There was a pendulum which oscillated slowly. The clock had no hands. "'Impressive,' said the raven. "'That scythe blade on the pendulum, nice touch, very gothic. "'No one could look at that clock and not think. "'Squeak!' "'All right, all right, I'm coming.' "'The raven fluttered across to an ornamental doorframe. "'There was a skull and bones motif on it. "'Excellent taste,' it said. "'Squeak, squeak!' Well, anyone can do plumbing, I expect, said the raven. Interesting fact. Did you know the lavatory was actually named after Sir Charles Lavatory? Not many people know. Squeak! The death of rats pushed at the big door leading to the kitchen. It swung open with a creak, but here again there was something not quite right. A listener had the sense that the creak had been added by someone who, feeling that a door like that with a door surround like that, ought to creak, had inserted one. Albert was washing up at the stone sink and staring at nothing. "'Oh,' he said, turning. "'It's you. What's this thing?' "'I'm a raven,' said the raven nervously. "'Incidentally, one of the most intelligent birds. "'Most people would say it's the minor bird, but squeak!' "'The raven ruffled its feathers. "'I'm here as an interpreter,' it said. "'Has he found him?' said Albert. The death of rats squeaked at length. "'Looked everywhere, no sign,' said the raven. "'Then he don't want to be found,' said Albert. He smeared the grease off a plate with a skull pattern on it. "'I don't like that.' "'Squeak!' "'The rat says that's not the worst thing,' said the raven. "'The rat says you ought to know what the granddaughter has been doing.' The rat squeaked, the raven talked. 
The plate shattered on the sink. I knew it, Albert shouted. Saving him? She hasn't got the faintest idea. Right, I'm going to sort this out. The master thinks he can slope off, eh? Not from old Albert. You two, wait here. There were already posters up in Pseudopolis. News travels fast, especially when C.M.O.T. Dibbler is paying for the horses. Hello, Pseudopolis! They had to call out the city watch. They had to organise a bucket chain from the river. Ashfelt had to stay outside Buddy's dressing room with a club, with a nail in it. Albert, in front of a scrap of mirror in his bedroom, brushed his hair furiously. It was white. At least, long ago it was white. Now it was the colour of a tobacco addict's index finger. It's my duty, that's what it is, he muttered. Don't know where he'd be without me. Maybe he does remember the future, but he always gets it wrong. Oh, he can go on worrying about the eternal verities. But who has to sort it out when all's said and done? Muggins, that's who. He glared at himself in the mirror. ''Right,'' he said. There was a battered shoebox under the bed. Albert pulled it out very, very carefully and took the top off. It was half full of cotton wool. Nestling in the wool, like a rare egg, was a lifetimer. Engraved on it was the name Alberto Malich. The sand inside was frozen, immobile, in mid-paw. There wasn't much left in the top bulb. No time passed here. It was part of the arrangement... He worked for death and time didn't pass, except when he went into the world. There was a scrap of paper by the glass. The figures 91 had been written at the top, but lower numbers trailed down the page after it. 73, 68, 37, 19. 19. He must have been daft. He'd let his life leak away by hours and minutes, and there had been a lot more of them lately. There'd been all that business with the plumber, of course, and shopping... The master didn't like to go shopping. It was hard to get served. And Albert had taken a few holidays because it was nice to see the sun, any sun, and feel wind and rain. The master did his best, but he could never get them right. And decent vegetables. He couldn't do them properly either. They never tasted grown. Nineteen days left in the world. But more than enough. Albert slipped the lifetimer into his pocket, put on an overcoat, and stamped back down the stairs. You he said, pointing to the death of rats. You can't sense a trace of him. It must be something. Concentrate. Squeak. What did he say? He said all he can remember is something about sand. Sand, said Albert. All right. Good start. We search all the sand. Squeak? Wherever the master is, he'll make an impression. Cliff awoke to a swish-swish sound. The shape of Glod was outlined in the light of dawn, wielding a brush. "'What are you doing, dwarf?' "'I got Ashfeld to get some paint,' said Glod. "'These rooms are a disgrace.' Cliff raised himself on his elbows and looked around. "'What do you call the colour on the door?' "'Odenil. Nice.' "'Thank you,' said Glod. "'The curtains are good, too.' The door creaked open. Ashfelt came in with a tray and kicked the door shut behind him. Oh, sorry, he said. I'll paint over the mark, said Glod. Ashfelt put the tray down, trembling with excitement. Everyone's talking about you guys, he said. And they're saying it was about time they built a new theatre anyway. 
I've got you eggs and bacon, eggs and rat, eggs and coke, and uh, and uh, what was it? Oh, yes, the captain of the watch says if you're still in the city at sunrise, he will personally have you buried alive. I've got the cart already by the back door. Young women have been writing things on it in lipstick. Nice curtains, by the way. All three of them looked at Buddy. He hasn't moved, said Glod. Flopped down right after the show and out like a light. He was certainly leaping at home last night, said Cliff. Buddy continued to snore, gently. When we get back, said Glod, we ought to have a nice holiday somewhere. That's right, said Cliff, if we get out of this alive. I'm going to put my rock kit on my back and take a long walk. And the first time someone says to me, what are them things on your back? That's when I'm going to settle down. Ashfelt peered down into the street. Can you all eat fast, he said. Only there's some men in uniform out there, with shovels. End of CD 7